days away, thank you, Lord, from voting for president and senators and congressmen and state and local officials. Days. We're almost there. Uh, this presidential campaign that's been running for like 22 months, it's going to be over soon. Uh, all of these political ads, in theory, will go away. Uh, people will stop stopping in front of your house to catch you in random conversations, which aren't so random. And uh, we will be able to vote and uh, see what the Lord has for our nation moving forward. And it's great because the grand democratic idea of we the people will be on display once again. And by the grace of God, a government of, by, and for the people still exists on the earth. But isn't it interesting that even in democracy, we can become so disillusioned by those who presume to lead us? At present, there seems to be such a distrust in our country from the average person towards our government officials. So many are upset by officials who are seem to be more interested in the perpetuation and enlargement of their own power and ideals than of the values and needs of the people that they rep represent. And here's the news flash this morning. Whether you exist in a dictatorship, democracy, capitalist, or socialist state, men and women will strive after power and privilege at the expense of others. In fact, in any organized group of people, some will strive towards power and privilege. It's one of the very things that continually proves that we as a species are sinful. But it's one of the very things that most of us also despise in others. Whether it's business, government, school systems, t-ball, soccer leagues, support groups, and even churches, people are plagued by this despicable human trait that some are looking for power, some are looking for prestige, some are looking for privilege. And I mention that in any kind of organization. I used to love this show, and I don't know if I'm admitting something to you that you'll look down on me for, I used to love the show Survivor. You ever see the show Survivor? Back in the day, now there's been like 16 Survivor All-Stars. I quit years ago watching Survivor, but it was amazing how quickly people started to try to become the one with power. And so often the one with power would then become the one who started exercising the privileges of that power. And interestingly enough, they got voted off the island, right? The minute they got power, power, they started to live in the privileges of that power. And the next thing you know, their flame is extinguished, right? In any kind of organization, this rears its ugly head. Even organizations that, that are supposed to be, uh, I don't know how to say this, philanthropic, you know, even 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 uh, even organizations that are supposed to be good hearted, right, have this problem of people who want power, people who want privilege, people who look for prestige. It's a despicable human trait. Yet this is a human trait that if we are to be the church of Jesus Christ, each one of us, not just those who have positions or titles of power, but each one of us must overcome this human trait. And this trait does lie dormant in you. It does. So long as you're human, this trait lies dormant in you. If you disagree, wait until you are invested with even an ounce of power, position, or title. Wait. For just that moment, you say, well, well that's never happened, Pastor Matt. I've never been a leader of anything. Oh. Uh, just wait. Chances are, sometime in your life, you will be invested with some kind of power, some kind of position, some title 
that elevates you, at least in the minds of people, above some other kinds of people, I guess. And then you'll see if you share in this human trait. I would suspect it would cause things to awaken in you that you are hard-pressed to induce back into coma. And this is the terrible truth. We are born with a spirit that strives for privilege. We are born with a spirit that strives for privilege. But as the church of Jesus Christ, we are commanded, commanded to lay that spirit down for another reality. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is being built into a glorious church. But we are not glorious and great when we pursue power and privilege. We are glorious and great when we minister to a lost and a dying world. We're not great and glorious when we achieve a budget surplus or complete a new building. We are great and glorious when we feed the hungry and visit the sick. We're not great and glorious when our church growth initiative added X number of members to our church. We are great and glorious when one person lost in sin and hopelessness confesses that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And most important for you today, the church is not great and glorious when it gets a perfect church staff or offers the coolest classes or the most relevant outreaches. The church is great and glorious when one of you, one of its members, just one, determines that you will be a minister rather than allowing yourself to sit in the seat of privilege and be ministered to. Did you catch that? The church is great and glorious when, when, when someone, anyone in the church, decides that I, I am no longer one to be ministered to, I am one to minister I suspect that in most of our churches, our chairs can be very much like thrones. So many of you were thrown off today by the fact that we moved the chairs, and we've already mentioned that. I imagine for a lot of us, we come into a place and look for this to happen, and that to happen, and this to happen, and if everything happened that ministered to us correctly, we walk out of this door and say, what? What a wonderful Sunday. What, what a great service. The worship was good. The special music was anointed. The preaching was decent. I said hi to four people. It was great. And I left. What a glorious Sunday. That, to me, is sitting in the seat of power and privilege. You're exercising a right to be ministered to. And perhaps you might be looking at the church, the church as some organization that ministers primarily to you. But today we want to talk about leaving our seat, our throne, if you will, of power and privilege as the ones to be ministered to, getting off those thrones, getting off those seats, and accepting the fact that we are to be the servant, we are to be the minister. You say, but you're the minister this morning. No, 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 no. You are the minister this morning. I'm the preacher, right? Now, I minister too, but... But you are the minister this morning. And I want you to repeat something simple after me, even if I haven't convinced you yet. I know this is the nice thing about being the preacher. I'm the only one with a mic on, right? I want you to repeat this after me. Repeat after me. I will leave my seat of power. That's very nice. To become Christ's minister. Good. You spoke it. That's binding. All right. 
Let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 10. You didn't have to speak it. You just did. All right. You just didn't want to feel weird next to the person who was speaking it. All right. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and following. Now, these are brothers here. Let's go ahead and read what they say to Jesus. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that's a leading question. Have your kids ever, ever came to you with that? To do whatever I say, all right? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. I wonder if he had a smirk on his face. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. Jesus replied, you, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They called them together and said, he called them together and said, you know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you all know that that's the end of the reading, because then you have a subject heading in your Bible. All right. Because, because the Bible wasn't meant to flow, it was meant to be broken into preachable sections. Anyhow, what an incredibly awkward, con that was sarcasm, what an incredibly awkward conversation, right? Two brothers who were part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, one John, who eventually wrote the Gospel of John and the beautiful book of 1 John, 2 and 3 John, and Revelation. Uh, they came to him and said, Lord, when you come into your glory, we want to sit next to you in the old throne room. What do you think of that? What a, what a question to begin with. Now, this was a pertinent question. I'm not going to deny that. Because these men knew that Jesus was the Messiah of God, the anointed one, the one who had been foretold would come and make all things new. So they assumed as God's anointed, Jesus would cleanse the land of those who did not follow God and he would remake the Jewish state. And three verses earlier in verse 32, we're told that Jesus and his disciples are heading towards Jerusalem. Now up until that time in this particular book, Mark Jesus had been ministering and preaching in the Jewish-populated, Roman-ruled region of Galilee, which is in the northern part of what we know today to be Israel. So he's preaching in the Jewish-populated, Roman-ruled region of Galilee. But now he is headed towards the Jewish-populated, Roman-ruled region of Judea and its capital city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem needs no introduction it's the holy city where it was prophesied that the great and eternal leader of God's people would place his throne there. And James and John happened to believe that Jesus was this leader who would place his throne there in Jerusalem. And why not? Jesus was a charismatic leader. 
Everywhere he went, people followed him. He was a speaker who appealed to the masses. Huge crowds of well over 5,000 would listen to him. They had seen him heal the sick, cleanse the leper, and even raise the dead back to life. It would seem that they were hanging out with a pretty supernatural dude. Why wouldn't he be the Messiah who would establish his throne in Jerusalem? What would keep him from doing so? Jesus knew that he was going to Jerusalem to make all things new and fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. He was going to the holy city, though, not to sit on his throne, but to be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of humankind. He was going to Jerusalem to do what he had been born to do. He was born to live a sinless life so that God would accept his life on behalf of humanity. He was going to make all things new, just not quite in the way that his disciples thought. He was going to make it possible for you and I to have peace with God and hope for this life and the next. That's why it's so awkward. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to lay down his life, spill his blood on behalf of people who wouldn't even thank or acknowledge him for it, and these disciples are busy looking towards their own interests. I mean, this is, this is really sad. This is a little bit despicable. You say, well, 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 Pastor Matt, how do you know that they knew why he, why he was going to Jerusalem and were still looking towards their own self-interest? Look back to verse 33. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, the, 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 uh, the name that Jesus called himself by, will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will, he will rise. Catch the next word. Then, I mean, Jesus is saying, I'm going to lay down my life for people. And they're saying, uh, we would like to put you in a position where people will lay down their lives for us. This is an awkward conversation. With all that said, Jesus doesn't operate here in anger. He doesn't look at them and, and say, what's wrong with you guys? He, he, he begins to tell them or ask them a question. He says, listen, guys, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized the way I'm about to be baptized? And we as Christians, we have this beautiful uh, symbolism here, right? We took the cup and the bread this morning. We have a nice tank down the hall that we dunk people in, right? We have our baptism tank that signifies that you're, you're saying no to the old life and coming up into the new life. We have these beautiful images of these, of these uh, covenantal things that Christ has given us, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Cup, when you're talking to a Jewish person in that time, meant the cup of God's wrath. He's talking about the Old Testament prophecy that, that God was going to pour out his wrath on all humankind, and he's saying, I'm going to drink that cup. If you need a little more proof, remember what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if this cup could pass from me, meaning this, this nastiness that I'm about to encounter, the horror of my death, if it can pass from me, let's do this another way. And baptism also had a very violent connotation at that time in history. Obviously, the baptism is the idea that we have of taking them down to the water and out. What they had was just going down into the water and crashing. That's where the Greek uh, verb, uh, baptizo, comes from. Even the casual reader can see that this baptism is not communion or the baptismal tank. He means, guys, you don't realize the horror of the death that awaits me. And you are visualizing ordering people around from my throne room. 
And of course, he asked them, are you able to do this? Are you able to take care of what I'm taking care of? You know, the sense of humanity. You able to, you able to take care of that? What do they say? Oh, we can. Yeah, wherever you go, we go, dude. We're going to do that. We're going to take care of it with you. It'll be great. We'll stick by you, and then when you get into your glorious throne, we will be with you. Right? Left. We can do it. And Jesus, operating in a little bit of foreknowledge, looks at them and says, ah, You will come to a point one day that you're willing to lay down your lives for God, but he knows that it's not that day. He knows that it's not that day. James will eventually be martyred, and John will eventually have about everything short of martyrdom done to him in the history of their lives. But for this moment, Jesus says, guys, uh, yeah, but no. Now, we wish at this point that the awkwardness would end, right? That they'd say, oh, we're sorry, Jesus. We were a little bit self-seeking. Let's, uh, let's just pretend this never happened. But no, the passage goes on, and it says, and then the other ten disciples heard what they were asking and became indignant. Indignant. I don't use that word a lot. They became indignant. They were a little bit ticked off, right? That, that, that James and John had done what? Asked before they did, right? That's what they're indignant about. You said, oh, what's the proof of that? The rest of the passage, right? Jesus doesn't come along later and, and say, yes, ten disciples, you should be mad at them for asking me such a thing. They were indignant that they'd asked first. The rest of the passage proves that, and if you look back to chapter 9, one day Jesus was hanging out in a house, and when he came out of the house, he said, what were you guys arguing about on the road? They were saying, well, we were arguing about which one of us was the greatest disciple. It is safe to assume that Jesus' group of disciples here was filled with a couple of vain, conceited, privilege-seeking, power-seeking dudes. It's safe to assume that. So it gets even more awkward. It wasn't like Jesus had just said to James and John, I'm going to die. He'd said to all 12 of them, I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed, and rise again on the third day, and they're looking for power. Very awkward. Very, very awkward. But once again, instead of getting angry, and like a godly father, Jesus calls these men around, and he gives them a moral imperative when they're acting very immorally. Read with me again, 42 and following. He said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus looks at them and says, don't act like the people you despise, right? He's talking about the Gentile overlords that are, that are around them. Remember how I mentioned just a few moments ago, Roman ruled, Jewish populated? We're talking about Gentile lords here, people who are ruling over the Jewish people, who were, who were taking unto themselves power and privilege at the expense of the people. And he says, all right, that's how they act. That's the natural inclination Here's how you are to be, or in Jesus' words, not so with you. In my kingdom, you are great if you act like a household servant. 
That's where the Greek term comes from, diakonos, which we get our, our term deacon from. You know, we don't have deacons here. We have elders and trustees, but the term deacon comes from that. It comes from a Greek word that sort of means household servant. You know, the one who gives their lives in service to someone who is not themselves, but who is the master. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, great in the kingdom, megas in the kingdom, if you want to be mega in the kingdom, you must first be like a household servant. Wow. Jesus says then, if you want to be first, protos, if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, he takes it to another level and says, you must be slave, doulos, to all. So he almost has varying levels here. He says, if you, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to start living your life as if you serve someone greater than yourselves. And if you really want to be someone who's at the front of the line in the kingdom of God, you must go to a, a, an, even, an even greater level and become a slave of all. Meaning not, maybe, perhaps meaning, let's just say perhaps, perhaps meaning not just serving the master, but serving and being a slave to all. That's the concept of the kingdom. And this is in direct teaching to what the disciples had just been awkwardly commenting upon. What were they talking about? We would like to sit with you, Jesus, in positions of power and privilege, lording it over people and telling them where to go and what to do. And he's saying, not at all. That's not how it works in my kingdom. He says, look, guys, I'm the son of God. Read that last verse. What, verse 45? Yeah, verse 45. For even the Son of Man, even Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, guys, does it look like I'm here for my own good? Did I come to subject all of you to me? No, I came to give my life for you. Have you ever stopped to think, just for a moment, how ludicrous, how foreign it is to our mindset that someone with Jesus' abilities and power and persuasion would use it for nothing more than to serve others. Abilities, power, persuasion, and he uses it to serve others. He's an itinerant preacher. He will use rocks for pillows. He will rely on other people for his food. He will, he will operate in the world as a humble servant. That happens to be the very word of God that was present at the creation of the world. Jesus was present when this world was formed. He was working with God the Father to spin out this universe. And when he came, he came to serve us. What a depth of humility and mercy and love is seen in verse 45 of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark. There's a saying that goes that absolute power corrupts absolutely, unless you're Jesus. 
Look at how Jesus exerted his power and dominion in this world, not through bloodshed, not through force of arms, not through subjugation of peoples, but at the cost of his own life with a eulogy of resurrection that says, choose me, whosoever may choose me, horrid sinner who curses my name may choose me, selfish person who hurts others may choose me, self-involved comfort-seeking hedonist may choose me. Why? Because I came to serve, I came to save, and this is the imperative of heaven. And with this appeal to himself, and the humble and giving nature of the Savior, church, I appeal to you today. Are you a throne seeker or a servant? And my, my definition of a throne seeker or a throne sitter is simple. One who views Christ and the church as working for them. As opposed to a servant. One who views Christ and the church as the reason and the basis for serving. That's the difference. Throne seekers are those who look toward their comfort and their place in life before the needs of their fellow person. Can you imagine for just a moment how Jesus must have felt when he describes his impending death to his best friends and they look at him and go, hey, what can we get out of this? I mean, really? Really? Like you ever look at a friend and begin to begin to tell your plight to them? You know, you know what I'm talking about. You got a good friend. They're the ones you call. They're the ones you talk to. They're the ones you shoot hoops with. And you're talking. And you go, yeah, I sprained my ankle. Yeah, the kids aren't sleeping through the night. Yeah, this is going on. Yeah, my wife yelled at me. Yeah, my husband, he's selfish. Whatever. And you're complaining to that person, and that person just completely disregards everything you've just said, and then respond with something like, Yeah, you ready to shoot hoops? <laughs> you know? Hey, uh, could you put like six bucks of gas in my car? Uh, you know? They just completely uh, brush over, you know, Anything that you're going through, and they just say, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks. This is what happens to Jesus that day. People who are throne seekers and throne sitters don't give any kind of affirmation to the needs and the desires of others because all they can see are their own. And this is the base human instinct I mentioned in my open you need not have a high place of leadership, a great title, or a great position to be a throne seeker. It's a disposition that exalts the needs, wants, and preferences of me, myself, and I. And those who are in the kingdom of God, those who are in the church of Christ, are called to lay down this instinct and take up love, attention, and attentiveness towards others. We see in Jesus no hint of selfishness, because the church is to be about absolute selflessness. Now here's the problem with us pastors. We operate in the sphere of the church and we forget that most of your life is spent at work and with your family. And I want to tell you that is where the shift off the throne has to start. You can't just say, well, if I'm going to shift off the throne, I'm just going to get involved in more stuff at the church. Yeah. And that'll show God that I'm serious about being a servant. Now, backwards, backwards. If you can be a servant in your home with your family, 
And if you can be a servant in your everyday walk of life where you're working, where you're interacting with people, it's going to be very easy for you to become a servant in the church. But we like to flip it on its head. And we like to say, well, just get involved in the church. Well, we want you to begin to serve your families before you ever think about getting involved in the church. I think about the years growing up in a pastor's household and then the years of ministry that I've done here now and and what I've seen in life. Isn't it amazing to you how many super spiritual folks flame out because they were something in church that they just weren't in their home? You know, the ones who you really looked at as they love God, they serve the church a ton, they get a lot done for the Lord. And then all of a sudden, one day, you hear the truth about what's going on in their life, and you go, oh, really? No. No. It has to start in your home. If you can't serve your family, you're disqualified from serving here. You are. If your home is not a place where you're a giver and where you're a servant... If you're sitting on the throne at your address, don't presume to come into the church and say, well, I'm serving the Lord with all my heart. Not the place to start. And to take it one step further, we have an entire lost and dying world out there. And we can get so caught up in our ministry at the church and completely forget that there are people who aren't making heaven Everywhere we go. And we interact with them day after day after day after day. And then we come and do our church ministry, forgetting about them. Why? Because we have our boarding pass to heaven. And we look at all those people stuck at the counter and say, I hope that God grants them a ticket. But God has equipped us to purchase their ticket to direct them to the right gate, to carry their luggage, to steward them to their seat. But most of us are happy to sit at the gate, sipping the Starbucks of church and munching on the Cinnabon of the Word. There are people desperate for the Lord stuck at the counter. And we've got the money in our pocket. We know the airport. We know the directions to the gate. We have the strength to carry their baggage when they can't. We have the right to steward them onto the plane. But we're sitting on the throne. We're sitting on the throne. And this is the reality that Jesus is trying to fight among his disciples. And do you see how his disciples lived after this? After what took place in the gospel? Do you know the history? Did you see what they did? They got off the throne of their lives and became servants to all. Servants, slaves to all. They all gave their lives in service to the Lord. They all made it their passion to bring others to Him. So I know you might have thought, well, with your opening, Pastor Matt, I thought this was one of those sermons where you encouraged me to get involved in a church program. I I mean, I had discipleship here. Isn't that what I do? Right? get you involved in a program or a class, tap you on the head, say, good kid, thank you, and move on through your Christian life. But that's not the Christian life. It's part of it. 
That's what puts the money in your pocket to pay for the ticket. That's what gives you the strength to carry the luggage. That what, that's what gives you the directions to the gate. Don't think too hard about this analogy, by the way. If you're trying to apply this to Christian doctrinal principles, it won't, it won't go all the way out. It's an analogy. It's analogous, all right? Don't, don't go all the way out of it. If you're, if you're deep in thought, like, what does he mean by the directions down the terminal? Stop. Stop. That's not the point, all right? You have everything you need to get them to the Lord. But we're sitting on our throne, and we're not in the midst of them. We're not in the midst of them trying to help them along the way. We're too self-involved. We're sitting in the privilege and the prestige that we have. And I want to tell you what the throne seeker looks inside the church, and I already mentioned it. And it's simple. The throne seeker in the church says the church services, classes, and programs exist to minister to me and my family. And when the church staff or the church programs or the church classes do not pan out the way I I want them to over a course of time, then I'm done. Because they are there to minister to me rather than me ministering to whomever. The one who gets off the throne says church services, classes, and programs exist to allow me to glorify God, to equip me for ministry, and allow me a place of ministry. That's being a servant. I'm going to mention that again. Church services, classes, and programs, which we have a lot of them here. A lot of services, a lot of classes, a lot of programs, because we believe that we should be ministering together. They exist to allow me to glorify God, equip me for ministry, and allow me a place of ministry. What I did not mention is they allow me a place of entertainment. They allow me a place of non-worldly enjoyability. Harken back to a few weeks ago when we were taught that you are the church. What is your attitude when you enter this place? Do you enter to be comforted, entertained, and encouraged? Well, I hope you're comforted and I hope you're encouraged. I don't care if you're entertained. But are you here to consume rather than produce? If Sunday lunch is filled with conversation about song selection, special music, And the entertainment level of the preaching, you might as well just call your chair in church the throne. Because you've missed the primary concept of the kingdom. You are to produce, not just consume. How many parables are about producing, not just sitting on the wealth that you've been given? Think about it. How many? Wasn't, it what James, wasn't that what James and John were after that day? A kingdom from which they could consume. And Jesus says, you are to produce. Jesus did not come consuming. He came producing. He did not come with expectations placed on others. He came with expectations from heaven to serve others. We look at our politicians. We look at our bosses at work. And we sometimes despise them for abusing their power and their privilege Yet we have the power of Christ that was exerted in the cross and resurrection. We have the power of salvation. We have the power of the victorious life. We have the prestige of being called the sons and daughters of God. And we hoard our inheritance, exercise our prerogatives, and have the audacity to treat others as if they should serve us. The very thing that we sometimes despise in the people who lead and have power over us, we are guilty of in the kingdom. We're guilty of it. We're just consuming rather than producing. 
We're just taking in rather than giving out. It starts in your home. It extends to your workplace. It extends to the people you see every day, however that might play out. And then it should extend to this church body. A household servant and a slave of all. You said in the opening, you repeated after me, I will leave my seat of power, my throne, and I will become Christ's minister. What does that mean to you today, now that you've heard me? What, is, what does that mean now that you've heard the, the message that the Lord has placed upon us today? What does that mean to you? For your home, for your family, for your workplace, for your mom's group, for your ministry within the walls of this building. I mean, the Holy Spirit is knocking at your heart's door. I trust that. What's he saying? Is the internal battle going on? I hope that it is. Probably the first thing that came into your mind that you can't get away from, even though you're going, Lord, no. No, no, no. You can't be saying that. That's just me saying that. That couldn't be you. That's probably the very thing that the Lord is speaking to you. I want to tell you today, there is a concept in the kingdom of God that we are to serve. That's the whole point here. Not to sit in a place of privilege. We are privileged. We're blessed to have one another. We are privileged. We're blessed to have this church building. We are privileged. We're blessed to have the preaching that we have and the classes that we have, the programs that we have. We're even blessed to have a budget surplus. But the kingdom is about people who minister in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we prayed this morning, we just spoke this morning, I should say, that we'll leave our throne to be a minister. Lord, I trust that some of us today need to begin to be a minister in our home to serve those around us rather than seeking some sort of uh, privilege and entitlement from our spouse or our children or the other people that we may live with. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Not just so we can start a new day on Monday and then forget it all on Tuesday. Lord, do a heart transplant in some today. Transplant a heart that is self-focused into a heart that is Christ-focused. That can't help but serve because of the way the Lord has redeemed. For those, Lord, who may be here today and who have served for years in the church in so many capacities, but don't serve the world, Lord, that don't, don't serve outside these walls for fear, for intimidation, or just for busyness' sake. Father, I ask for those this morning who are in that camp. Father, would you give them the strength and encouragement, Lord, to see outside of themselves into the needs of others that they encounter every day. To minister, Lord, with your power and your love. And for those, Lord, who 
who perhaps are sitting here today and they they have looked at the church as merely a place to give unto them. Father, I pray that you would also renew their mind today and help them to look at this place as a place to minister to others. A place that's ready-made for ministry and for equipping and to give glory to the Lord. God, help us in the renewing of our minds and our hearts today in everything that we've spoken. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.